Hey guys, welcome back, and happy Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, where we celebrate the history and accomplishments of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in this country. And this year, it's taking place against a backdrop of COVID-19 and this rising swell of racism and hatred. Everything from our current administration referring to this as a Kung flu and a China virus to physical attacks on people who happen to look Chinese. I've heard stories of Korean citizens being attacked and being told to go back to China or take their China virus out of this country. I've also been on the receiving end of a lot of racism. My mom's from Taiwan. I still have family there and in mainland China. And the last week has been especially rough for me. Some looks, some comments and glares and just me existing in a space where I don't feel comfortable being noticeably Chinese right now. This isn't the first time I've experienced racism. When I was a kid, I got teased for how weird my eyes looked and I was told that my family ate dogs and that Chinese restaurants would capture stray dogs and serve them the whole dirty Chinaman stereotype. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, what are you? Or where are you from? But no, where are you really, really from? As if I'm an outsider in this country that I was born in. I'm from San Diego. But it's always been a sort of reflex that's been built into me to minimalize these experiences, to not validate them. Because at the same time I was growing up receiving these remarks, I was also told that I was part of this model minority. And that, those two words served to give me the impression that I had no right to complain, that my experience wasn't valid. Here's a really good example. Towards the beginning of this COVID-19 pandemic, a company that I had used for years called Hammer Nutrition released an email saying that they've always had a no Chinese ingredient policy. What they were trying to say was, we make things in the USA, but they chose to use the term no Chinese ingredient policy as if Chinese ingredients are automatically dirtier, more likely to get someone sick. I posted about it. The company, by the way, never apologized. But I had some people who were telling me, this isn't racism. China has a record for being dirty and having poor standards, as if no one here remembers the DuPont scandal where they dumped C8 into groundwater, giving how many people cancer and how many babies birth defects? Seriously, Google it and watch Dark Waters. This cycle of experiencing racism, but either minimalizing it myself or someone else on the outside telling me it doesn't exist, has been going on my entire life. And I'm done with it. So today, we're welcoming Gina Lowe, an advocate from Domestic Violence Services of Snohomish County and fellow Chinese American, to talk about it and how it affects domestic violence amongst Chinese citizens. Let's dive in. Welcome to the podcast. Can you quickly say hi, introduce yourself? 
Hi, I'm Gina Lowe, and I am a domestic violence prevention educator and community outreach coordinator at Domestic Violence Services of Snohomish County. I go rent a lot of the schools and I educate people on healthy relationships. And happy Asian Pacific Island Heritage Month. Oh, it's, it's a really important month right now, especially because I think right now, especially with COVID-19 and the pandemic, it's really, um, it's really hard for Asian Americans right now um, to feel celebrated and to feel like they're seen. And especially the stigma around the virus is making us feel isolated, making us feel like rejected from society. So I think now is a really important time to celebrate our heritage and really talk about the successes we've had and also recognize the hardships that we faced in the past and how it's led up to now. I'm really trying to post more on our Instagram page at DVS Snowco about um, Asian, Asian stereotypes around dating and things like that, healthy relationships. And um, that's something that is really does affect people a lot more, but it's a lot more subtle these days. So I'm really trying to educate on that. I think a lot of people surprise, well, they were either surprised or they flat out refused to acknowledge how much racism, you know, like Asians, I guess there was during this, this time. Why do you think that is? I think there was a lot of, a lot of people don't recognize it because it's very subtle. A lot of the things that we're told are kind of masked as compliments or microaggressions. And it's kind of made to seem like, oh, you're different things. And things have just not been made for us. Like for example, I like to wear makeup a lot. And it took me a long time to figure out how to do it because everything is kind of geared towards monoliths and um, Western Eurocentric look. And so our perception of our own beauty and uh, how we feel about ourselves self-esteem wise and being kind of left out of the narrative most days is kind of the, what a lot of Asian Americans suffer with is kind of being left out of the dialogue and being put onto the side. How does that tie into us being known as the model minority? I think a lot of times the model minority is kind of seen as oh we're expected to be doctors or lawyers or something that doesn't really cause waves and a lot of times because there's not a lot of perceptions of us in the media we're kind of seen as this we're in this box we're expected to stay inside this box of you know academics smart people don't make waves and things like that and that could be tied to our culture a lot in terms of being part of the communal aspect of things and not making a fuss um, respecting people of authority. And that can really, that really contributes a lot to, that really contrasts with this society where it's all about independence, speaking up, speaking back to others. And I think that that really combines difficult, like when, when you come into American culture, a lot of people who are Asian Americans in this country are immigrants and they are getting used to the way that we interact a lot in this country, so it's a lot more um, subtle from their side. They speak up in different ways rather than what mainstream Americans do typically, which is go out and protest, um, speak out about it, but people are a lot more private and culturally, especially. 
How do you think we got from a place where, in this country, the first anti-immigration laws were against Chinese civilians being acknowledged as this model minority? I think one big thing is that the Chinese Exclusion Act, a lot of people in order to be seen as legitimate immigrants, people really want to be seen as good citizens and be accepted into this country. So we feel like we have to act a certain way in order to be a part of this country. And I feel like there's also that intergenerational difference a lot. When you talk to older Asian Americans, they say, talk about how they're so grateful to be here. Um, that they love America, America's the best. And there's this kind of indebtedness to the country for even taking you in. And I noticed that the younger generation, there's a lot more, how come they're not treating us as true citizens? Because that's what we deserve. Those are our rights as citizens. So I think there's a lot of generational disconnect there. Um, and there's been a legacy of people wanting to be in this country, but being prevented from it so we're trying to be the best americans that we can be in order to be accepted here but sometimes that doesn't always work because we're still considered um a charity case or we'll let we'll let one of you in but not and too many of you you know that's kind of a mindset that we've had with this chinese exclusion act and that's kind of the attitude that's been had of protecting american society you know it's a whole power dynamic where a lot of people, if you think about it, a lot of people are tied to immigrants who may be documented or undocumented. So a lot of times the power is, hey, I can report you to ICE or I can do this to you. And so we have this model minority dynamic where we keep quiet. We want to protect the person. So those people are unable to speak up or say a lot of things. So they want to be just good good people in order to because they're being kind of forced to in a way if you think about it there's a power dynamic where someone could threaten to report you so that's kind of i think that kind of plays a lot into um that fear of being deported or being left out or rejected in a way and there also is the historical trauma from world war ii when japanese americans were locked up in concentration camps too, I want to add. And notice how during this time, it was only Japanese Americans, not German Americans. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just really interesting how we choose people based on their looks rather than if you look at a lot of, we've had a lot of conflicts with European Europeans in the past, and we've never seen that kind of scale of of concentration camps or controlling a population that way, the way we've seen it happen to Muslim Americans and um, Japanese Americans and Asian Americans. And it really goes to show that if you look different, it, it can be really hard to assimilate for you as, as an immigrant group. Uh, because if you've noticed like Italian Americans in the past, they've been there's a lot of prejudice against them when they first immigrated into the United States, but because of the Eurocentric look, the fact that they're able to fit in as white Americans, they are able to assimilate far more because no matter if uh, I speak a, I speak English, very standard English, don't know how to speak Chinese at all, I still get, do you speak English because of the way I look? 
So that's kind of the way that it's kind of been in the past is that there's a lot of trauma about how we look. We don't want to look too Asian or else we'll be excluded. Do you think hearing things like, where are you from? No, where are you really from? Contributes historical trauma. Historical trauma. Yeah, that definitely contributes to historical trauma because it assumes we are the other. We are um, someone that's not a part of the group. Um, sometimes it's meant in a way like, where are you from in the United States, which is okay, but a lot of times people, when I say something like, oh, I'm from Seattle, uh, they keep going being like, well, where are your parents from? Where's Where are you really <laughs> from? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's just a really huge form of othering us and making us feel different in a way. How does this also damage communities like those in New York City? Um, just as an example, the communities there are one of the poorest in the state. So what must it be like for them to hear this stereotype of being a model minority, being doctors, lawyers, rich individuals? I think it's really hard too because a lot of Asian Americans in New York City, there's so many different groups of Asian Americans and we're grouped in, Asia is a whole continent. So it's really hard, especially for like, especially Southeast Asians who might not pass as, um, as fully East Asian or white enough. That, that's another thing that they're experiencing. They're considered more brown and they might be, feel like they're lumped in with another group. And when they hear this thing of model minority, they think, I don't fit into that group. And also it feels like, oh, you're doing fine. We don't need to help you. When someone, a kid in math class might be struggling because they might have a learning disorder or something like that. And they're seen as, oh, you should already know this. Um, why aren't you getting it? And it's more of a higher disappointment and pressure on a kid that's having a hard time in school or financial or people who are struggling financially, especially because we're assumed to be the rich minority. We're considered to be the successful minority when really there is, it, when you clump a whole demographic together, like Asians, we're a whole continent. So um, there are poor Asians, there are some rich Asians maybe, but really that kind of stereotype does do harm. Even though it's considered a positive stereotype, it does um, cause damage. Any stereotype does cause damage, really. Do you think this model minority stereotype was invented as a compliment or was it sort of a way to keep Asian populations, I guess, contained, feeling like they had no right to speak up against racism? Yeah, I think it's also, it, it's a lot of containment there, um, not letting them go outside the box. There's like a lot of areas where Asians aren't represented enough. Like um, a lot of times you might see them not in leadership positions. You might see them more in, you know, um, positions where they are being led, but not being leaders. Um, you might not see them enough in the movie industry. The movie industry is a big one. Um, where you might not even just see them not acting, but also not directing movies or writing, being screenwriters for those movies. And it's also, I think the model minority has also been used as a way to hurt other minorities as well. 
and say, hey, look at these guys, they're doing something better than you. So why can't you be as successful when they don't realize there's a different history there? Like a lot of Asians, even though we had a hard time historically, uh, we weren't bring here unwillingly from slavery or like those kinds of traumatic situations where people were brought here over ships, people died unwillingly. And there's that generational trauma there that we don't really acknowledge a lot of the time. It's, it, it, it's that kind of difference there. So it has been used as a way to scapegoat other minorities and also as a way to kind of control Asians as like, you know, look at my perfect child, even though they're unhappy, you know, like they're, we're giving them strict rules and they're unhappy and this is what we expect of them, you know. Do you think that this culture, this feeling of trying to maintain the status quo to remain in this country for fear of being kicked out contributes to things like the tiger mom stereotype and the strict standards by which a lot of families, including mine, raise their children? Yeah, I think it definitely does. I've talked to a lot of parents from very different minority groups. And actually, a lot of them do tell me, you know, I'm harder on my children because I do worry about them being able to be successful in this world. I do give them a harder time because I know they're going to experience a harder time and their lives being taken seriously. So I do think that that does contribute to that strict parent kind of idea is that a lot of generations before our parents have experienced war and they're worried about the status of their family, financial security. I think a really huge reason why there's a huge stress on financial security is there hasn't been a lot of financial security previously. So that's kind of like, I don't know if you've heard of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but a lot of times parents who have experienced that, they've they've been at the bottom. They just need food, water, financial security, and they just want their kids to be able to have that um success so that's something that i i've noticed is a huge difference historically is that there's been the systematic concern for children to succeed that way a lot of times when people talk to me and other friends i have who are um, asian americans they do experience the question of what are you where are you from and when we confront the speaker about this question, their comeback is always, oh, I'm just curious. What are the intrinsic issues around that sort of curiosity though? I think the intrinsic issues around that curiosity is um, a lot of times people consider people who look like that exotic and like the preconception that someone is from somewhere else if they look that way look different from other people is a very problematic conception because there are people that have been here for generations. There's fourth generation Chinese Americans, there's fourth generation Filipino Americans, and there those are people that have been here for a long time. And regardless if they've been here for a long time or not, they're still um, considered Americans a lot of time. And that curiosity thing happens a lot because I think people just haven't interacted with people who are different from them for like, they might not have access to a lot of people who are different to them. And that can be a problematic thing because if you see people that hang out with like their own group of people all the time, 
they might just not be able to understand perspectives of other people or understand the diversity in that or that not to make assumptions about someone being from somewhere else. It also depends on the context in which it is because I know a lot of Asian Americans try to, uh, um, I know a lot of times Asian Amer other Asian Americans like to ask each other, so what, what are you culturally and stuff like that as a way to identify with other people, kind of like how we did earlier. Uh, but it's more as a, as a way to kind of uh, um, connect to other people and that feeling of, oh, I found someone else who's kind of like me or looks like me. Like in my situation, um, it was clarifying with my brother-in-law that he spoke Cantonese and I only know Mandarin, so I'm not going to try and speak Mandarin to him and risk yeah. his irritation. Never doing that again. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely something that I've come across with like, oh, who speaks Mandarin? I don't know. <laughs> who speaks Cantonese? <laughs> yeah, you just start speaking them in a random language they don't understand and that, <laughs> that could be problematic. I one time accidentally tried to speak uh, Mandarin in a Cantonese um, style restaurant in New York. Um, whoops, <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> that was yeah. Big. It's it's hard because like sometimes you know you think people can speak Mandarin because you know a lot of people do who also speak Cantonese. So it's like how do you you know it's good to ask sometimes. <laughs> And for listeners who um, don't realize, so the main language of China, um, Han Yu, comes from the, the greatest majority of people in China, the Han people. But um, even though that's the main language, there are hundreds of minority groups within China with their own individual dialects. So just as a clarification. Mm -hmm. All right. So from this historical trauma of first being barred from entering the country and then letting in, but only if you keep up this model minority status, we get the stereotypes of the sexualized Asian woman and the emasculated Asian man. What's, what mm -hmm. happened there? I think it's really interesting because I was actually reading about the Page Law of 1875. This actually preceded the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And this, law mainly targeted Asian women um, and it barred basically barred Asian women from China, Japan or other oriental countries um, from quote unquote oriental countries um, where China there was a trend before this that a lot of Chinese women tended to immigrate to the US to participate in prostitution by force or coercion sometimes so in order to stop that they were just like, hey, let's just not allow Asian women into this country. Um, and this kind of legitimate, legitimized concerns of anti-Asian protectionist people who are saying, oh, we shouldn't allow this. This kind of validated them saying, oh, don't let these people over because they are contributing to issues of prostitution. So, and this also affected Asian women in the way that um, there was actually an amendment in 1907 that said any American woman who marries a foreigner shall take the nationality of her husband, unquote. So that is a really interesting, uh, that really affected Asian women's, Asian American women's immigration status because even though they were born here, they were not, they were not considered citizens. They were unable to nationalize and this affected more not just Asian women, but also affected women who were married to men who were from uh, Asian countries. 
So that was something that was interesting, but it affected Asian women more because they're more un likely unable to naturalize like a, a white woman would be able to. So it sounds like, um, if I'm going to summarize that, there were fears, maybe part legitimate and partly fueled by racism that quote unquote, Oriental women were gonna be brought over as prostitutes, which sets the stage for citizens in the US who hear that to look at Asian women who were born here or maybe had come here before the laws were enacted and associate them with prostitution. Yeah, and it's really interesting because they were actually brought here by force. A lot of them were brought here by force or coercion uh, through practice trafficking, basically. So it's really interesting how our logic around that law is really saying, let's keep out the prostitutes when really they were brought here. They didn't choose to be brought into the situation. Mm. Not even talking about the ones who tried to immigrate to this country to escape the Japanese invading China mm -hmm. um, during the Second World War, because those of us um, who have read um, upon the history, and just the listeners have some background, the Japanese raped and murdered hundreds of thousands of Chinese civilians. There was one graphic rape that was so horrible, it actually became immortalized in history as the rape of Nanking. And even today, we don't know how many civilians, innocent civilians were murdered during that time. So it was, anyways, digression. So along with that, along with setting the stage for saying these are prostitutes, if you separate Asian men from marrying naturalized women, you're setting the stage for them to be emasculated. So we have these two concurrently going on with just this one bill. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like men, Asian men having to reclaim their masculinity is almost trying to use that power over women, their own women from their own culture as well. So Asian women were already being sexualized and objectified. And this kind of gave them permission to say, hey, in order to regain my masculinity, I have to have this power over someone else who's weaker or has less power than me. And that's really a big part of toxic masculinity is that a lot of Asian men are emasculated to this point where they feel like, you know, I need to have sex with a, a woman or I have to have sex to, and then that pressures them to pressure someone else to have sex and may perhaps like do something unhealthy even further. So how does this affect dating when you're Asian in this country? How does that affect relationships? It definitely affects relationships in a lot of ways. I have met so many Asian women, or as an Asian woman myself, I have experienced a lot of um, weird comments. And especially through dating apps now, it, the access of talking to people and objectifying people is so much easier now because you see an image, you say yes or no, and you're just judging someone based off of a small description and their face mostly. And I know people don't just like read the descriptions, like highlight things, underline things. They don't do that. <laughs> it's usually a very quick right or left thing. And so a big thing is that a lot of times people might feel more empowered to say racist or sexist things. You might, and I think this is a lot of pop culture has kind of legitimized these with exoticizing women, um, portraying Asian women as sexy, like kind of exotic. Uh, geisha, I don't know if you remember Memoirs of a Geisha, but um, that was a really um, 
huge thing that kind of perpetuated this geisha stereotype that geishas are basically Asian prostitutes, which they, that's not what they do really. Um, they're more as entertainers and things like that. But then that kind of perpetuated that sexualization and fetishization of Asian women. And jumping off your point there, in that movie, they actually had a, a famous Chinese actress, Zhang Ziyi, playing the main female character who was supposed to be a Japanese woman. And mm -hmm. this is something that we see a lot, and we touched on this earlier, that Asians can be considered a monolith in this country. During World mm -hmm. War II, many Chinese businesses had to put signs out their doors saying, we're not Japanese, we're Chinese, and we are not with the Japanese, because they would mistake Chinese for Japanese. And you even see this today with COVID-19, you see Korean people being attacked for being Chinese. You see Japanese people being attacked for being Chinese. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk about how like people assume their race a lot of the time. They say, are you Japanese or Korean? Like I've definitely got Korean a lot. Um, so that's something that really kind of makes us feel there is a lot of times I know a lot of Asian Americans, we do identify with other Asians in a lot of ways because a lot there are some cultural similarities in a lot of senses, but there's a lot of differences. For example, like the languages are not even intelligible between each other. Like sometimes even in China, some languages are not even intelligible, like Cantonese, Mandarin, um, a lot of minority languages like Shanghainese too, like that, that's another example. Um, you can't even understand the languages between the two, and there's so many different cultural histories. And the funny thing is that a lot of the times there there was already conflict within Asian countries, like Japan and China and Korea, and the whole. I don't um, know if people know about the comfort women issue. Kind of goes in with that um, the rape of Nanjing, but it that was a big part of it. Is that women were basically slaves um, in the military and they were used as basically unwilling prostitutes and I wouldn't I don't say prostitutes I would say they're more sex slaves than prostitutes because um, it was it was not voluntary at all um, and they would usually kill wh whatever man was in the house and then rape the women um, and it was very brutal and so it's just really interesting to see people really categorize us as a monolith when there is such a strong different histories there and so many different conflicts that we don't even consider like um historically there's not been a lot going like getting along especially if you've noticed what's happening happened in hong kong before all of this um hong kong's conflict with china uh, about democracy and things like that i think people just really need to educate themselves on what is going on in asia and what are the different conflicts are that are happening as well and even with taiwan and china uh, i have family in both mainland and in taiwan and that's a whole that's a whole can of worms all on its own the difference <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. you could do a whole like season of podcasts on that one <laughs> <laughs> not quite ready to conquer that one that that is um yeah, yeah that that that's a rough one because i have family in both and i'm yeah very strong feelings there. Yeah, <laughs> and I can see it being almost traumatic if you, you know, if you're Korean and you come from this history of, you know, the Japanese, you know, kidnapping and raping Korean women and then being mistaken for Japanese. You're being mistaken for mm -hmm. 
the people that historically have caused you trauma. That must be horrible. I remember like my grandmother, she was, um, she recently, she passed away a few years ago, but she was alive during that time, uh, the rape of Nanjing. And she really has strong, a lot of trauma from that. And that is something that if you're being linked to Japan all the time, uh, and kind of being categorized with Japan all the time, it's just such a traumatizing experience to be categorized with something you have such a negative experience of. And sure, of course, like, not all Japanese people contributed to that, right? That was more the Japanese government, an issue with the Japanese government and the military. But it was something that even more so, how, how could you categorize her with that? She used to sleep with a knife under her pillow every night. So that's, that's one of those things. It definitely feels like another way to erase who we are and just group us into this giant monolith of Asian. Yeah, and another thing there is that our history has kind of been ignored or erased throughout this, like I didn't even know about the Page Law of 1875 until I did further research into it, because that was a, that, that really affected Asian women. And I was like, we hear so much about, when we do mention it, about the Chinese Exclusion Act, we talk about how it affected Asian men. But we don't always talk about how it affected different people within the Asian community. As a work, when I do my work in healthy relationships and violence prevention, I have such a hard time finding statistics on Asian American communities um, and different people from Asian American communities. I do like use uh, the API gender-based violence website a lot and they are so helpful. They have so many statistics on things, but it's just so hard when we don't have like the amount of research that we have in terms of like, we do have a lot of research on um, violence against black Americans and stuff like that. And even that we don't have enough information on as well. We don't have all the statistics there, but even more so we, we don't look too much into these other groups. Like what about Southeast Asians? How, how many statistics do we have against violence against Southeast Asian women? And nonetheless, LGBTQ communities within the Southeast Asian community or East Asian communities, or th that that's a huge, factor in our issues with history. I think it's really important this month to think about how we can look into the ways Asian women have been involved in the, Asian men and women have been involved in the violence, gender-based violence issue, because uh, that is something that we don't often think about. And right now we're seeing so much hate crimes and violence against Asian Americans. And those are things that are just bringing into light the issues of violence against Asians. And I think that we really need to look into our history and really research things because that will kind of inform us in ways we can move forward. Like, I don't, I think a lot of this recognition is required for giving grants to, to different organizations that serve Asian American Pacific Islander communities. There's a lot of barriers that, um, such as, being able to access interpreter services in for Asian Pacific Islander communities. So that's something that we really need to acknowledge. And so I wanna share some resources as well um, for 
from our organization. So our 24-hour our, our confidential hotline is 425-252-2873. And it is on 24 hours. So if you have any questions about relationship advice, anything, you're in the Snohomish County area, that is a really great resource for you. We do have access to shelter. We have access to legal advocacy. They do help. Um, we are doing a lot of things virtually through by phone. So that is something that you can access. Another resource I can recommend is Love is Respect. They do have a chat line on their website. So that's a really great resource for people who um, don't feel comfortable talking on the phone with someone um, and, and you're not in a safe space right now. So that's a really great resource. Um, I would also, um, and for Asia, specifically Asian Pacific Islander communities, I would, in the Seattle area, I know API Chaya has a lot of great resources. So reach out to these places because we really do care about you and um, ask questions and really start talking more about, especially if you come from that community, um, really talking about it and finding people that do relate to you is really important because when we don't talk about our own issues, that's something that is going to sneak up on us one day. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. No, thank you for having me. And happy Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Yeah, definitely. You too. One last thing. The last time someone asked me, what are you and where are you from? I explained to them, hey, when you phrase it that way, it makes me feel like you don't think that I'm from here, that I don't belong. And they asked me, well, I don't know how else to say it. So I've recommended to them, what's your ancestry? It was like a light bulb went off in their head. There is a way you can ask where it's not going to be offensive. For many of us who have these histories, we're proud. I am proud of being Chinese. I am proud of my heritage. Just before you ask, give a little consideration. We're people and we're Americans and we want to feel like we belong here. That's it for this week. If you want to email us, if you have a question, comment, concern, or inspirational story, email thedvdiscussion at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at The Diva Discussion. We all have stories, and they deserve to be told. See you next time. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone. <laughs>